First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Ladies and gentlemen, today we are going to be discussing cancel culture and the fight back against this absurd censorship. So, Tim, you ready to jump in? Let's go for it. All right, let's get after it. Mm-hmm. All right, so first up, we're going to talk a little bit about how we can go about getting ourselves canceled. So there's four ways, according to the article in the Post Millennial, about how we're going to go about getting ourselves canceled. And the first is going to be the accusations of sexual misconduct. So this is going to be the whole Me Too movement or any perception that you might be in any way related to that. The next up is going to be perceived racism. So being seen as a racist or being accused of being a racist. Uh, Number three would be speaking out against the trans ideology. And number four would be associating with anyone who has previously been canceled and cast out of society as a pariah. So we're going to run through a few of these examples. Now, what's important to see here is that whether or not the allegations are actually true, the consequence for the person who gets canceled are going to be the same. So that's going to be, you know, loss of jobs, education, reputation, friends, family, etc., And how does one go about recovering from being cancelled? So, even though an apology is demanded, it's then going to be perceived in his admission of guilt. And guilt, obviously, has to be punished. So, you're still cancelled even after you apologize for it. Yeah, which is similar to what happened with Don Cherry. Yeah, that was uh, one of the more recent examples. I mean, it would... uh, I know it's been a few weeks now, and I think he's got his own podcast now, which is a great way for him to just kind of keep doing what he's doing without being beholden to the media. Mm-hmm. Well, the interesting thing is I don't, I'm not a big fan of Don Cherry, but yeah. I disagree with the way it was handled, and mm-hmm. he wasn't really given a second chance yeah. to rectify what had happened. Yeah, they, uh, they basically got him and uh, hung him out to dry right away. And I'm, I'm the same way. I mean, I've never really been... Uh, a follower, but just because I don't really watch hockey, I mean, everyone who knows me knows that I'm not really a, a sports guy, so Same. it's uh, it's no big surprise. I mean, I kind of know him in passing, and just as the guy that wears those extravagant suits, and you never see him wear the same ones twice. And all I've ever really thought about Don Cherry was he speaks his mind, which I like, and I really wonder what happens to all those suits. Like, does he keep them all in a giant closet or... <laughs> Good rhetorical question, right? Like, I mean, this is the this is the depth for which I just know nothing about this yeah. guy. But I, it's more about the principle about what happened. Where, if you're not familiar with it, basically what he said, uh, it was on Remembrance Day, and he was basically admonishing Canadians for not wearing a poppy, which I'm sure is something he does regularly every year, uh, because it's mm. very important to him as it is to all of us. So where they got him was that he also singled out people who had recently arrived in the country for not observing this custom, and maybe it's just because they don't know about it, but he also is saying, well, if you move here and you had no part in any of the sacrifice that took place for us to have the country we have now, then the least you could do is observe that same custom that we all do. And I mean, that's not too unreasonable of the point, but what they got him on was when he said, you people, which they sort of said, well, that, you know, obviously means he's a racist and we have to get this racist off TV. And besides, it's old enough for him to be put out to pasture. So off to the glue factory with you, you're canceled. 
It's ironic because you people, in a way, it's a very general statement. Of course it is. We don't have... the implications of it. Yeah, we don't have anything in the English language to, like, (laughs) distinguish between a singular and a plural when it comes to a second-person pronoun, right? So when I say you, I'm talking to a single person, but in French you'd say, like, either tu or vous, depending on if it's singular or a bunch of people. Yeah. Like, vous is like the you people of French. We don't have it, so we say you people, or in some unfortunate cases, use guys where they kind of make, put the S on the end of you and think that makes a plural, and it just sounds horrible, and I, I can't start to stand that shit. But <laughs> Anyway, that's uh, sort of what happened to Don Cherry. Mm-hmm. So, it, we've noticed that there's a counterculture that is emerging in which the canceled are moving on to other platforms and taking their audience with them. Perhaps the sole creator, beholden to nobody, is seen as more trustworthy than media paid for by the state. Yeah, and a little while ago there was a big controversy here in Canada where the Trudeau government offered the media something like, what, $680 million? Like, just media money? Like, here you go? And everyone's like, oh, uh, what a generous thing for them to do to help support, you know, the the trustworthy news. And it's like, are you people serious? Mm -hmm, Like, you think mm -hmm. that money doesn't come with strings attached? Yeah, and they're losing tons of money. Of course they are, because like the the whole idea of people being beholden to, to media conglomerates now, I mean, the technology to get a message out is so inexpensive that their whole model is no longer functional. I mean, they have so much top-heavy hierarchies in these places to try to get out a, the same message you could do with a cell phone. And I think people are getting distrustful of the quote-unquote authorities. Of course, I mean, because these people have sort of appointed themselves as to be authorities, yeah. even though that's kind of an undeserved designation exactly when you become sort of the self-righteous arbiter of truth with like zero self-reflection or humility it's uh, a good way to lose the narrative and people's trust and especially if they're out of touch with what is going on what people are thinking Hmm. in general and their you know yeah their thoughts and opinions so and as we are wanting to do we love to discuss the foundations of western civilization and one of those is going to be the redemption narrative which cancel culture is completely missed out on i suppose they just forgot that that's a completely necessary component if you want to keep people walking in the same direction you know if you have a whole idea of once you're canceled and you're off the path you can never be redeemed it's like okay well then nobody's ever going to want to go that way again right yeah, it's quite extreme. A little bit, yeah, where you sort of, instead of redemption, you have apostasy. Or it's like, now that you've walked off the path, you can never return, and in fact are now an enemy of the people who walk the path. And that's a sort of a different way of looking at, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, a social group of people and how they're all going to interact, right? Mm-hmm. And we've noticed this redemption narrative has been taken out of, of movies, which are products of popular culture, which we'll talk about later on. Um, so now we can look at the canceled. Yep, the canceled. So these are a few, uh, you know, fairly recent fatalities in the culture war, uh, where cancel culture has consumed, you know, people who may have otherwise advocated it for in the past. So there is a certain irony to that, which I find quite amusing. Uh, first and foremost is going to be one that's just happened in the last few days, which is, uh, J.K. Rowling, who came out in defense of a woman who had the audacity to defend the idea that there are men and women, and there are two biological sexes, and, you know, we are, in fact, a sexually dimorphic species, something that seems to be so self-evident that I'm not really sure why we're arguing over it, but this is part of what can get you cancelled, is uh, 
basically asserting that biological reality is real. How dare she? How dare she, right? You know, <laughs> something so so terrible as to assert that biological reality is truly a thing. So mm-hmm. J.K. Rowling came out and said, yeah, you know, I think this woman was right. And, uh, you know, I kind of think that you can do whatever you want. You can have relationships, whatever you want. It doesn't matter. But, you know, I kind of draw the line at saying that, you know, sex isn't a real thing. And then, so, of course, the woke Twitterati went after her. All the wokes came out and, you know, just woked her into oblivion. But, you know, I can't help help but think this is maybe just a Twitter problem. And if people stop taking that particular platform so seriously, none of this would even be real. But this likely could be. Yeah, this seems to be where all the people who really like to feel important want to gravitate towards. Because then they can just fire their thoughts out into the ether of the internet and see if people respond to them. (laughs) It's a weird game, man. So, um, who else? Alex Jones got this treatment as well? Yeah, he was taken off pretty much all his popular social media. Yeah, all the social medias within, I think, what, 48 hours? They had all gotten rid of them. Twitter, Facebook. Yep, all of them all at once. They just canceled them outright. And Alex Jones does say some pretty audacious things. You know, he's got his opinions, and I suppose he's entitled to them, but... Is it really worth censoring him completely? I don't think I mean, so. I mean, I don't see what, what people plan to achieve when they cancel people. It's like, you don't get rid of the idea. You just sort of drive it underground. You know what I mean? Then you can't challenge it because people won't, aren't willing to say it in public, even though the idea is still there, festering in the background. So even if it is a really bad idea, censoring people who say it prevents other people from challenging it publicly. You exactly. know what I mean? It's like the only way you're going to get rid of a bad idea is by presenting a better one. So if yeah, you, but if you just say that the idea itself is, you know, you're forbidden from discussing it, then you know I think you're going to run into even more problems. Yeah, and there's more platforms showing up anyways that can <laughs> respond to that and provide people yeah. with ways to communicate. Yeah, the, the ideas will just go elsewhere. That's I don't know. Like, was it Jung who said it, or you know, how ideas have people, people don't have ideas. Right. You know what right, I mean? Right. So it's like, if you're just going to banish these people, the idea is still around. It's just going to be driven into spaces where it can't be challenged, and that's where I think you start running into more problems with extremism, right? Which is a weird term, right? Like, what, what the hell does extremism mean? Like, at what point does the idea become an extremist idea? Right? I don't know, maybe it's when you begin to uh, use violence to promote it? Yeah, and that I guess might... when you're really dogmatic about it, and you don't allow any discourse yeah that might be a a better precursor that we could draw the line at where it's like as soon as you believe that an idea is so infallible you stop accepting criticism towards it yeah i mean yeah there's always going to be like good logical criticism and sometimes it's stupid and you can distinguish between the two but all of a sudden once every conceivable notion that's challenging the idea is stupid that might be when it becomes a little bit too extreme they tried to go after dave Chappelle for his latest special but fortunately, he was having none of it. I'm kind of glad about that because uh, he actually kind of stood up and said, this is ridiculous. You know, this is woke Twitter mob. Go to hell. You know? And fair enough, because, I mean, like, what are they really going to do? Like, he's independently wealthy now. They can't really touch him. Yeah. He was part of a, a, um, a certain college who, um, in 1990... There was a women's group, part of this college, that published a list of demands mm-hmm. in the campus newspaper threatening radical physical action if those demands weren't met the following week. And enraged by the women's stories of ongoing rape, they wanted a wholly new code of sexual conduct, one that required verbal consent at each step of sexual in- intimacy, regardless of how many times the couple had been intimate. 
and uh, this group known as Antioch met the demand in the sleepy Yellow Springs, Ohio. Liberal arts school of 500 students became a national laughing stock, and to some they were overzealous liberals gone ridiculously draconian, to others like SNL. They were deeply unsexy naifs, overconcerned with date rape, fun killers, basically. To almost everyone, their prim boundary drawing seemed unnatural and incorrect in a context divined by its spontaneity, emotionality, and complicated relationship with taboo. But uh, Dave Chappelle, who is a longtime resident of Yellow Springs, his father was an Antioch College professor. In 2004, Dave Chappelle released a sketch, Love Contract, whose subject was formalized consent policies like Antioch's, wearing a red silk robe and holding a, co- cupboard, a clipboard. Chappelle requires his would-be sexual partner, played by a perplexed Rashida Jones, to fill out a lengthy contract governing their encounter to check off a box of if she declines anal, for example. The sketch hums the same tune Chappelle belts out as as his new Netflix stand-up special, Sticks and Stones. He sees cancel culture, progressive Americans' attempts to police culture to draw lines around what ought to be acceptable in humor and sexuality and online conduct as ridiculous. A laughing stock, even morally wrong. So Chappelle's criticisms of cancel culture have prompted people to declare him canceled, mm. most slowly for the pot shots he took at the alleged victims of Michael Jackson, R. Kelly, the Me Too movement, and the LGTBQ community, whom he refers to as the alphabet people. His <laughs> cancellation positions him in an overexpanding rogue galleries of people and things deemed problematic in the progressive internet's court of opinion. Yeah, so he basically just told him to go fly a kite <laughs> and uh, just said he wasn't going to accept it. And yeah, they obviously haven't really been able to do anything. But I think that's sort of the idea, right? It seems to be cancel culture is based on fear, right? It's all of a sudden, you know, you're, they're going to use your fear of being canceled to get you to do what they want, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they'll find whatever in your history to paint you with something. Yeah, that shows here's where you've disagreed with us in the past, and we're going to use that against you now, because, you know, that's just the way we are. <laughs> Never mind if you've, you've changed as an individual over that period of time, or... Yeah, or if society changed around you, and everybody thought that way at the time. You know what I mean? If that wasn't really inoffensive back then, and now it's offensive now, you can't sort of retroactively apply the morality of the present to the past. <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of a stupid exercise it's like oh man you know this entire you know country of people now is bad because in the past they did something else it's like well those people are like several generations dead and these mm. people had nothing to do with it so but i mean i, th- I don't know i think people just want something to be offended by it's uh it's emotionally <laughs> gratifying for them to be like you know righteously indignified at all times yeah it makes them maybe feel kind of important well, it's easier to focus on other people than yourself. And, like, they'll, they'll eat their own as well. Like, even people that have once advocated this ideology, like J.K. Rowling, and uh, another one was Sarah Silverman. She got denied, what was it, a part in a movie or a TV show because the producers the night before found out she was wearing blackface in a photo. Yeah, for a comedic sketch that resurfaced. Mm-hmm. And um, she stated in a Forbes article, I recently was going to do a movie, a sweet part, then 11 p.m. the night before, they fired me because they saw a picture of me in blackface from that episode. I didn't fight it. They hired someone else who was wonderful, but who has never stuck their neck out. It was so disheartening. I just made, it just made me real, real sad because I really kind of devoted my life to making it right. 
Mm. And um, Silverman goes on to complain about the dangers of cancel culture, attributing the current social media climate to her firing. She says, I think it's really scary and it's a very odd thing that it's invaded the left primarily and she says the right will mimic it. If you're not on board, if you say the wrong thing, if you had a tweet once, everyone is like throwing the first stone. It's so odd. It's a perversion. It's really, look how righteous I am and now I'm going to press refresh all day long to see how many likes I can get in my righteousness. Hmm. Some interesting points there. Yeah, I mean, it's... uh... The blackface thing, I don't know. I think that's probably something that we should probably drill down to in a little bit of detail because I think there is a distinction between what blackface actually is and what blackface is when the left claims it has a weapon to use against their enemies, right? So when they see Sarah Silverman, it's like an excuse to cancel her, right? Right. But when Justin Trudeau does it, oh, well, you know, he was just being a college student. He was, you know, young. And it's obviously not real blackface because that refers to minstrel shows. It's like... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's what we've been saying this whole time, but, you know, it's only convenient when it's somebody that you like. Yeah, so they find excuses. Yeah, for... and it's like, well, he agrees with me politically, and he's got nice hair, and look at that smile, and he might take a selfie with me one day, yeah. so... And I yeah, guess, we'll especially get... since it was election time. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, despite it being around election time, it's, you know, when push comes to shove, people really don't care about that shit when it's the, the politics, yeah. and they agree with it, and they'll just give them a pass when it suits them. So, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe uh, Justin Trudeau has inadvertently ruined blackface as a weapon for anybody, you know? Because now it's like, okay, well, if he can do it, then you can't really accuse other people of doing it and not being racist. Because we all know Justin Trudeau is not a racist. I mean, to make that accusation we, would be absurd. You know, I mean, maybe he secretly, super secretly is. He, he just kind of seems like a bumbling idiot. You know what mm. I mean? They just, but I mean, it's, that's what power looks like. When you can walk into a a party in, like, an Arabian Nights costume looking darker than Wesley Snipes. (laughs) And nobody says a thing. That's basically what pure power looks like. Right? I mean, as the son of the Prime Minister, you know, that political dynasty, that that name carries a lot of weight, no one's gonna say shit. I mean, if anybody else turned up to a party like that, you'd be like, what are you doing? Go change. This is absurd. You did your legs, too? God, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, my whole body. It's like, yeah, okay, yeah, that's that's committed, but yeah, you you gotta go wash that shit off. Right. Well, he tries to uphold certain diversity standards, and it just makes him seem. Oh, he was just bringing diversity to Halloween, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Like, we all know that if it, that was a, a any other politician, they would have been crucified. For that. Yeah. Right around yeah. election time. But he's got special armor or something. Of course he is, yeah. <laughs> uh, what about uh, what about James Gunn? That was the, the movie director, right? What happened to him? Um, he was uh, essentially fired over some tweets um by Disney and he was it happened pretty instantaneously as well, but mm-hmm. he got hired in a, essentially by the other team, the uh I think it's Warner Bros. DC to do the new you know, Suicide Squad. Um, so that was the tweets thing as well, right? And I think he apologized for it too. But, mm. but that, of course, is seen as an admission of guilt. And then he's been a racist this whole time and knew it. <laughs> that's even worse. So, yeah, never apologize to the mob, man. That's the worst thing you can do. Uh, mm. Now, what about... Oh, yeah, the other one we were thinking about including here was uh, Louis C.K. He was the the closet masturbator, you know. But, I mean, this one, this is sort of like, uh, he had a, what was it, a sexual fetish for masturbating in front of women. (coughs) So he would ask them 
if they were okay with that, and if they were, I presume he would do it and probably find it gratifying or something, and maybe the woman would be creeped out, or maybe she'd just be like, whatever. You know, this is a celebrity, like, a little weird, but it's not the worst sexual perversion I could imagine. And then I suppose what they got him on was asking people if this was okay, and then it sort of came out that, you know, he's a sexual deviant. And that's uh, sexual perversion and deviancy and uh, get you canceled pretty quick. So apparently he's been making a bit of a comeback, but I guess it's sort of, you know, that you'll take the hit for it. But if you can just sort of be like, yeah, I'm a bit of a weirdo. You know, I think people will just forget and move on because there'll be another thing to be outraged about tomorrow. And people will just forget because you didn't really make that big of a deal about it. Mm-hmm. Like, what was it? Uh, Hugh Grant got caught in some prostitution scandal and then just sort of was like, yeah, that was a dumb thing to do. My bad. And then, like, the next day, nobody really talked about it, because it's just sort of like, well, there's no mon- no story here. No scandal. The guy did something stupid, admitted it, moved on, like, alright, what else can we be offended about today? Let's, let's go be outraged. And yeah. Let's go have a march or something. Another thing that can feed the news cycle and yeah. get people enraged by, and somewhat controversial. Yeah, makes people feel like they're making a difference or something. And then there was also uh, Oren Amite. This is the guy we saw when we got to go see Peterson down in Toronto. And he was there with Gad Sad. Now, Oren Amite got banned off of Twitter because he's been working uh, in the psychology of sexuality. He was at Brock. He was at Ryerson. Uh, been doing this for decades. And he had some the audacity to use the wrong pronouns on Twitter for somebody he didn't know the gender of. Just a complete stranger. Accidentally misgendered him. 50-50 chance. Mm-hmm. Those dice came up snake eyes. And, yep, permanently banned from Twitter. Because, uh, yeah, he misgendered someone. So, yeah, this is, uh, you know, the depths of depravity that outrage cancel culture is willing to stoop to. And it's corrupting not just our public discourse, but also the media and movies that we used to enjoy consuming. But now we're so bland cotton candy theme park rides that you don't even remember what you watched after you walked out of the theater. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. There's, they're a lot less memorable. Yeah, because <laughs> they, they, used they to don't be. really, they don't really mean anything. They're just sort of like advertisements for merchandise and for other movies that are based in the same movie universe. Yeah, and the stories are so generic. The pa- the pace is so fast. There's no time to let things sink in. Yeah, is another, you know, common thing that I found with a lot of new movies. They just move from one thing to the other to the other to the other with not much consequence usually. Or so you're not really sure what you're supposed to remember, so you just don't remember <laughs> anything. You're like, well, none of that really mattered at the end. So, you know, why, yeah, why did I even bother going to see it? Yeah, so I think you know it's not a coincidence that the quality of movies with strong legacies has gone downhill. And they also tend to have these force extreme feminist SJW communist themes embedded in them. Mm-hmm. And identity politics, I think, are one of the main factors contributing to the decline of quality storytelling, inspiring heroes, and overall creativity. And judging by the numbers that I found um, on some of the newest woke movies, people are clearly not enjoying popular movies infused with social political agendas from the start and it makes you wonder whatever happened to making a naturally compelling movie with characters you cared about and you know i used to be in favor of reboots and hoping that they would pay respect to the originals while adding something new 
and some new risk-taking ideas to build upon the legacy, rather than destroy it and make it pointless, pretty much. And um, in other words, I'd say they've just gone too far lately, and they don't really care about how they're wrecking these great classic franchises. So um, one of the clearest examples of that is Terminator Dark Fate. Mm. So we'll issue a spoiler alert in case you haven't seen it. Um, So seeing the first trailer, it didn't really get me excited. But as a big fan of the series, my curiosity got the best of me. Plus, I was looking forward to the return of Linda Hamilton who plays Sarah Connor, the original hero in the first two Terminator movies. Um, she was one of the a classic female lead who um, wasn't ex- effective because of just an underlying political ideology, but because she represented a vulnerable woman who developed into a strong character with an interesting arc, taking what she learned from her partner and original protector, um, Kyle Reese from Terminator 1. Um, so in the beginning of Dark Fate, they basically give you, they start off in an interesting way by setting the tone by replaying the tape scene with Sarah Connor in the mental hospital at the start of Terminator 2, um, where she rants to Dr. Silverman about the impending doom of Dug- uh, Judgment Day, um, the day when Skynet goes online, becomes fully conscious, and launches nukes to wipe out 3 billion people. Um, and then you're taken to the beach where... John and Sarah have taken some vacation shortly after the events of T2, where a new Terminator comes and kills off John Connor, who's the male savior figure of mankind, which means that there's going to be a new new target for this new movie, who's a new female leader of the Resistance fighting against a different enemy named Legion, not Skynet. Which is never properly explained or fully elaborated on. It's like, oh, okay, here's a new replacement. Bad guy for some reason. Yeah, AI, yeah. Um, So the main problem with killing John Connor is that it voids the struggles and victories in the first two movies in order to only really give an excuse to continue the franchise. Mm. And in a way, it's similar to the latest episode of Star Wars in comparison to the rest of preceding movies. So... In this movie, Dark Fate, Sarah Connor's return is essentially wasted, lacking any memorable moments or lines. For some reason, um, there's a part where it was in the trailers, too, where she just tosses a grenade over her back and she casually says, I'll be back, after throwing it down to the enemy, and she just walks off. Throwing it away like a throwaway line? Yeah, basically. (laughs) Now, she is um, humanized in certain ways when she's grieving over the death of her son, but um, it's just not... It's almost like a different character, in a way, and they just... It was another lost opportunity Mm -hmm. when they brought someone back. That was great. So... The controversy for this movie began when director Tim Miller from Variety Interview, he talks about Grace, played by Mackenzie Davis, who's the new, who plays the new protector role in the movie. Mm. And he said, if you're at all enlightened, she'll play like gangbusters. If you're a closet misogynist, she'll scare the fuck out of you because she's tough and strong, but very feminine. We do we did not trade certain gender traits for others. She's just very strong and that frightens some dudes. You can see online the responses to some of the early shit that's out there. Trolls on the internet. I don't give a fuck. So 
it's like assuming the mindset and the reaction of somebody you don't even know. You're like, well, obviously this is a good character, and if you don't like it, these are the only explanations. You must be a sexist. So if you don't go to see this movie, you're, you're obviously, you obviously hate women. So give me money. <laughs> it's you know what you know what this is actually called. This is called a shakedown, right? Oh, it's right. like oh, that's some pretty nice character integrity you got there. Be a shame if somebody were to call you a sexist. How about one of those? How about some sexist? You know, it's like no, no. I think your movie's just a piece of shit. You know. You couldn't just accept that the trailer had a very lukewarm reception reception because of yeah. the overall quality of the well, story. It was, it was the same thing when they tried to reboot Ghostbusters, and it's like, it's going to be the all-female this or the all-female that. It's like, that doesn't necessarily make it better, right? That just kind of cheapens it, and it cheapens women. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, in comparison to the other protector figures of the old Terminator movies, you got Kyle Reese... You've got uh, Arnold, who plays the good T-800 in T-2 and T-3. Yeah. And then you got Sam Worthington in, in Terminator Salvation. And with Grace, there isn't really anything very, like, admirable since, for lack of a better term, like, she doesn't, like, her character doesn't have much charm or mm. soul or humanness that makes you want to care for her that much. Okay. And... You know, she does make the ultimate sacrifice in the end, but it doesn't hit as hard as, let's say, those other previous characters. Right. And, you know, um, they show her fighting as a soldier in one of the future scenes where she almost dies. And this was one of the better parts. But I would say I think there's more to making a classic character than just making them tough and aggressive. And the protector role, they have to have heart and maybe take some sort of moral stand for it to be truly memorable. Right. And, and, and what's weird is that when she first appears in the movie, Grace, she has this instant rivalry with Sarah Connor, who actually helps them out at the very beginning. Like, she helps them fight the, the Terminator. Mm. And in response, they just steal her car and leave her there. <laughs> it's like, it, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Um, and... So, you know, the first Terminator movie, it had a love story embedded within sci-fi horror action. Um, the second Terminator movie ha was a Christian allegory with themes of fatherhood, fate, maturity, and sacrifice. Um, so I just wanted to read a few parts. There's this essay called The Biblical Schwarzenegger by Gustav Skordman. Um, and he analyzes the Christian symbols in Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And it starts off really interesting. He says, It's often said that our era lacks faith in myths, that gods are absent in the Western world, but that doesn't mean we don't miss them. People have a need for spirituality, and this need has to be satisfied in some way. Jung argued that popular culture is a particularly clear promoter of archetypes, precisely because of its desire to reach broad public audiences, which forces artists to be universal. If you consider why a film is popular, you may find it that because it's because it's based on archetypal material or on a well-known theme. If you want to use, avoid using Jungian terminology. So if you watch Schwarzenegger's Terminator 2 with this in mind, you may see it as a story about Jesus Christ. The film is full of biblical allusions and parallels, but what is really interesting are the differences between T2's depiction of Jesus and the traditional one. So at the start, a woman sits up. A woman sits locked up because she thinks her son will be the savior of mankind. This woman, Sarah Connor, 
has as evidence her visions and a visit by a man from another world, the future, or rather a possible future. Thus, it is not just a distant place physically, but also indeed existentially. The man from this possible future was with the woman one night, and she gave birth to his son, a child whose father is thus not of this world. The, this man of Sarah's, the father of the son, then disappears, coming from nowhere and then vanishing. He nullifies himself and hence has never existed. With no man involved in the birth of Sarah's child, it is a virgin birth. The son's name is John Connor, J.C., the same initials that Jesus has and are sung about in the movie Jesus Christ Superstar, a popular culture depiction of the life and works of Jesus. A realization of her son's greatness and her own special role comes to Sarah in a dream, but her understanding about Judgment Day is seen by those around her as a sign of madness. Sarah is the only person who fully understands the conditions of mankind, she screams. You're already dead. Everybody. Him. You. You're dead. Already. The whole place. Everything you see is gone. The viewer also sees that Sarah is right about this destruction. There is evidence, but whoever knows she is right keeps silent. Knowledge about the future is not for everyone to know. The force that is threatened, the future empire machines, sends out soldiers to kill John before he grows up to be the leader who can bring about the fall of the machines. Like Harad, the machines try to kill the threatening new king even before he is fully grown and can constitute a threat. John is a leader, but only in a possible future. His kingdom is not of the, this world. So then you have the guardian angel and the angel of death. But this, the second angel arrives, a, a model 101, newly reprogrammed to protect. It's the opening scene of Terminator 2. Surrounded by lightning, Terminator 101, Schwarzenegger, arrives naked from out of nowhere. He is born into this world in a truck lot. He walks naked, open to the world, into a biker hangout and asks for clothes and a motorcycle from one of the bikers. He gives them a chance to hand it out voluntarily, but when the bikers become violent, T-101 responds with violence. He steals, but he steals from criminals. He then starts his mission dressed as an outlaw. He is, to all appearances, beyond the law, but as he is beyond the laws of the ruling Skynet in his world and in his time, the angel of death, T-1000, is born the same way, naked and finds clothes to blend in and a vehicle to carry out the mission, but this Terminator doesn't give his victim a chance. He kills him immediately and takes what he needs. T-1000 takes a police uniform and car. He comes as a representative of the law, a defender of the established order, a soldier of Harad who must kill the future king. Now the police fight against outlaws, but the survival of the humanity depends on the future of the police. Yet no one is what appears... No one is what he appears to be. To get their camouflage, the two Terminators must eliminate the people who originally wore their clothes. But here T-101 fights the outlaws, while T-1000 fights the human defenders of the law. Both their behaviors fit their different natures. So I think from that, in a way, you can get a sense of how much is packed into... Yeah, I never really thought about that, where the Terminator gives the guys the opportunity to just give them the clothes, and... They attack him. And then they attack him, but the other guy just straight up kills the guy in cold blood and takes yeah. his clothes and that the movie does make that distinction and i i find that interesting how it's like yeah the bad guy ends up dressing up like the good guy and the good guy dresses up like the bad guy yeah so it's like a reversal yeah and... i think that's that is kind of interesting it's simple right mm -hmm. you know, just the mm -hmm. uh the juxtaposition of those different archetypes or whatever yeah and in the <laughs> new movie grace um she confronts cops as well like instantly but i don't think she gives them much of a chance and i know i guess given those circumstances maybe 
you would have to dispatch them as quick as possible. I don't think she kills them, but it seems a lot different anyways from what happened before. Um, but overall, what's interesting is that Dark Fate only made 124 million worldwide, which is really low for that franchise, while even Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines made almost quadruple that amount, over 430 million. That's wild. So it had a really, it flopped when it came out, and... And considering how much these things cost to make, right? You know, it's, some of them might, yeah. might not even recoup those losses. And I think people, um, like, fans of the franchise are just getting tired of it overall. Like, they've tried to remake, they've tried to make new trilogies, like, in the series, but the rights have shifted over to, like, different people. So does it even mean the same thing? It's like, well, I yeah. just bought this movie, and now I'm just going to remake my own yeah. version of this movie, so it's like... And we'll time travel again to change the whole timeline, <laughs> and it's just, like... It's like, okay, ridiculous. yeah, so I guess if you have enough money, you could just literally buy the rights to a movie and just remake it. <laughs> that's, that's just a thing now right and that's yeah. it, because there's a lot of money involved it's not copyright infringement because they sold you the copyrights but for the audience it's sort of like okay well you know you just bought something from somebody else and it just remade it into something it means something totally different than the original but you think you can ride that name to generate a lot of money from nostalgia and it's kind of mm. it's kind of hollow and shallow and um, yeah self-serving in a way yeah i think it misses the key points and themes of the originals but the funny part is they got James Cameron, the original director, creator of the Terminator franchise, involved, hmm. and they still couldn't save it. Yeah. I think his role was probably minimized, but, uh, yeah, definitely but they wasn't. still screwed it up. So. And what was that, uh, the other one from 2016, the Ghostbusters reboot? Right. So... What's interesting, the development of this movie was riddled with many problems from the start, and originally it was based off what was supposed to be an all-female superhero movie devised by Sony producer Amy Pascal, mm. who tried to make sure, who reportedly made sure to prevent Ivan Reitman, the original Ghostbusters director, from having any creative input. And the trailer for this movie became the most downvoted trailer of all time, with <laughs> 1. million downvotes currently wow. to... 309 up um so despite what sony wanted us to think its objective hatred was not because the main cast were women but because it was a simply boring awful underwhelming movie mm -hmm. and in short it was unfunny unscary cringy and it was tied to a beloved franchise that many people love, and... Like, there's, there's paying homage to a franchise, and then there's just, like, straight-up massacring it on screen. Mm -hmm. It's like, you bought the rights to this, you made something that was way worse, you threw a bunch of crappy tropes in that aren't even funny, and, you know, they just made complete fools of themselves, and anybody who didn't like it was obviously an unwoke racist. Exactly. The that same, was the narrative. That was the narrative back then, too. It's like, you have to <laughs> like this, otherwise you're a piece of shit. Yeah, and, and that kind of emotional terrorism and manipulation is something people should probably always be on the lookout for, because if the idea is good, it will stand on its own merits. That seems to be so self-evident, I'm embarrassed I have to explain it. But when you have to start using shame and force to convince someone that something is good or correct or right or whatever, it might not mm. be. You might just want to consider that, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, if your audience doesn't resonate to a movie, it might not be the fault of the audience. <laughs> I'm yeah, they had saying, some difficulties like, acknowledging that 
that they made an awful movie and that people weren't responding to it so just play the blame game and that's that's the reason that yeah. it sucks and blaming your audience is never really a smart idea for any movie producer like it's just yeah what are you doing and if you look at the comments most people are saying that yeah it just it's it just looks awful it's not because they're women you know yeah so i actually went to see this um trash fire and <laughs> every man in this movie is either an asshole an idiot or a creep mm. um chris hemsworth plays the eye candy secretary with such brilliant lines as you know an aquarium is a submarine for fish and that man threw the went through the wrong door and he says that when bill murray's character like flies out of the window because of some ghost that it's genius released. it's genius is what it is because that window's not a door and it's not safe to do that so it, the guy obviously died yeah 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 i, I get it i get it it's, <laughs> it's, it's just pure comedy gold right there like yeah it was just so forced and it just made no sense and there was barely anything interesting or funny about the main characters which meant it was impossible to care about them uh, the only one I really liked was Kristen Wiggs, who was kind of like playing like the Bill Murray, Peter Venkman role of the group. Mm. Um, the the rest were intolerably annoying. One of the only member, only one of the me like main memories that stuck out was how Melissa McCarty's character was annoyed with not getting enough wontons with her soup. Like they thought they could repeat this joke and thought like it would actually be funny when it just made no sense mm. and. Um, also, none of the ghost scenes were legitimately scary or creepy, like in the original um, Ghostbusters that succeed preceded it. Um, like, you know, the beginning scene with the librarian in Ghostbusters 1, how you're, like, following her around, and there's that really creepy music, and it just, there's a build-up to something, and that's oh, and what happens all throughout the movie. And in Ghostbusters 2, that guy in the painting? Yeah, I, Vigo. I had nightmares about that when I was a kid for weeks. Right? That was the most terrifying thing I'd ever seen. I had to hide behind the seats oh, when the man. Scalari brothers You look out. at it now and it's hilariously bad. It's like, that's the worst CG I've ever seen. You could do better than that with, like, Photoshop or Lightroom or anything it seems now. Like, it's... But back then, that was, for a kid, terrifying. Yeah, they actually had an idea of what could be terrifying for a younger audience, right? Yeah. Which is something they've lost. Um... So, uh, in an interview um, with The Independent, uh, Paul Feig, uh, the director of the new Ghostbusters, he says uh, it had ceased to be a film. It was now a political battleground, and it's a transformation that still frustrates Feig to this day. He said, yeah, it becomes a political thing. I think that's why we didn't do as well at the box office as we should have, because it's a fun summer movie. People were like... We should make it every woman's duty to go out and support this movie, but nobody wants that. I don't want to go see a movie that's like, you have to make a statement by going to see this movie. I just want to go for fun. But this is the problem they they already created themselves. Yeah, they think people will be able to earn unearned virtue by simply <laughs> going to see their movie. It's like, I'm not selling you 90 minutes of garbage and a bunch of very fattening popcorn. What I'm selling you is virtue. You can come here, and if you see this movie, you are therefore a good person. On the right mm. side of history with all the right thoughts. And then you don't have to do anything to cultivate any of that stuff. You can just go see a movie. That's way easier, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, apparently now we're, we're seeing movies to make, uh, to virtue signal. Basically, right? yeah. And, Basically, uh, to virtue signal. And it's like, oh, I wanted to go see the new Woke movie. Yeah. I was it Woke? Oh, yeah, I ain't, I ain't afraid of no Woke. Like, to me, 
why I see a movie is I want to go to be inspired or to feel something, mm. you know? And we want to see the hero battle evil, essentially. It's oldest story yep, the hero, mankind. The hero story, man, where you got to see someone who is kind of inadequate and then is faced with some obstacle they can't overcome and then they have to grow as a person and then they overcome the obstacle and then they get the reward. That's mm. the story we want to go see over and over and over again in different permutations and different manifestations. The mm. Same story where it's like, all right, here's some jackass who can't really do things that well and he has to, you know, suck it up and grow and figure it all out and then he finally beats what was defeating him initially. Mm-hmm. That's the other problem. They don't they don't have any proper arcs. Like there really? isn't that proper like development from yeah. And that's why if your if your obsession in the movie is to show a strong woman and that's your highest possible value then maybe they never run the risk of showing any vulnerability to begin with so there's no character mm-hmm. growth it's like oh well, here's someone who's like super strong and perfect to begin with and at the end of the movie they're still super strong and perfect it's like well i'm glad i went to go see that <laughs> i learned a whole lot from that experience you know I saw, I saw how they overcame all that adversity that apparently they didn't have mm-hmm. and they were just doing it in a really funny way the whole time like yeah there's like just no reason or, or th- real there is no story there like but it's deep, like deep true purpose of it. If, if you show someone growing you have to show them in a crappy light and if you apparently show women in a crappy light in these movies then that somehow means you hate women so they can never <laughs> grow because they can never be weak to begin with yeah and it's uh basically because they develop the technology they get um that's what helps them become ghostbusters and there's nothing there's no other real struggle like behind it because mm-hmm. the other one in like uh, so the original hollow. ghostbusters didn't they all get canned from the university or something? Is like they yeah, got laid off. Yeah, and or that something? happens in 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 the new one too. Hmm. Yeah, like they were in the original. Yeah, they were like parapsychology professors, something like something. that, and they ended up getting cut from the department. And yeah. then they were forced to start this company to fight. Yeah, they the start their room. own. Yeah, start their own business. Yeah. Um. And, anyways, so it's funny because like the people involved, they're capable of of good work because um i saw um one of paul feig's movies bridesmaids and i was directed by him and included Kristen wig and melissa mccarty and i was actually a decent it was a good comedy for what it was mm-hmm. um but um they didn't have much to work with um with the new ghostbusters it was just like really uninspired and the script sucked and they failed to capture what the heart and soul of the Ghostbusters is what I would say mm. fundamentally. And now they're doing a, another reboot that's going to be coming out this year, right? Where this is actually like a proper continuation of the storyline with the son of the original director, right? Yeah, that's right. Ghostbusters. I saw the trailer for that. I thought it looked amazing. And like they pull Ecto-1 out of that barn and the guy starts flying through the cornfield. I'm like, holy shit. And they actually acknowledge the seat on the side of the thing that was never used in any of their movies. Like, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. what I'm talking about. This is taking it up a notch compared to this other thing where it's like we're just going to bastardize it and create this stupid woke feminist version of it that doesn't make any <laughs> sense. It's like no, let's actually continue the story. Let's think it out. Let's make it better and cool and still pay tribute to the. That's hard to do. You know what yeah. I mean? Like if you create a really really good movie that hits on a lot of good points, it's a lot easier to make that worse than it is to make it better. So yeah, if they take a few risks and they pull it off, well, then congrats to them. But you know what I mean? Doing it for virtue signaling completely misses the point of filmmaking. It's a step in the right direction, and a lot of Ghostbusters fans they wanted a passing of the torch kind of um, kind of story. Yeah, where the older ones come in, and then 
they give the legacy to someone else and um it's it looks like that's what they're doing so i think it'll be a much better uh end product hmm. um so another um interesting thing to note is that the ghostbusters 2016 grossed 229 million but it needed over 300 million to break even <laughs> with marketing and all the effects used and yep that's uh all that's, the issues they that's a lot of bread man so <laughs> overall it was a failure yeah someone took a bit of a bath on that you know what i mean it's like oh so i guess that 70 million just doesn't uh, materialize okay right and so in our last um example we've got the uh the newest charlie angels movie which had a had some controversy as well and um that one the new reboot it only grossed 57.2 million worldwide hmm. and in response to this um director elizabeth banks attributed the box office crash to a form of sexism from a male dominated audience so according to the director, the main reason behind the failure was that men don't go see women do action movies. So again, it's another one of those assuming the mindset of the people you say are not seeing your movie. So rather than blaming it on it not being a good movie, it's sort of, well, obviously the audience is just a bunch of sexists that don't like to see strong women in action movies. Yeah, but it's the context, you see, because... Um, she dismisses uh, the box office success of Captain Marvel, the Brie mm. Larson-led Marvel movie that earned $1.1 billion, as well as Wonder Woman, which grossed $821 million in 2017. And the reason, because they belonged to a quote-unquote male genre. Oh, and okay. she says they'll go and see a comic book movie with Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel because that's a male genre. So even though those are movies about women, they put them in the context of feeding the larger comic book world so it's all about yes you're watching a wonder woman movie but we're setting up three other characters or we're setting up justice league and she says by the way i'm happy for those characters to have box office success but we need more women's voices supported with money because that's the power the power is in the money yeah apparently and uh again they seem to completely miss miss the point and we've had great female characters in in the past in the 80s yeah what was wrong with ripley ripley and sarah connor yeah these characters that already exist that somehow this ideology is completely destroyed it's like if they're gonna make it worse then just you know leave those characters in the past you know what i mean we've we've already had great characters they don't need to come up and make them worse and and ironically completely destroy the very thing they were trying to fix in the first place exactly now there's a few other examples of cancel culture uh, right here in Canada. Uh, one of them uh, coming here from the Post Millennial uh, about an Edmonton Pride event that was canceled in 2019. Now this is a really interesting event because this is another one of those examples of the left eating itself. Right. Right. So uh, basically, what happened was it was a bunch of competing demands that have resulted in the cancellation of the event. Now it was proposed that the parade be replaced with some sort of protest against systemic injustice which i'm sure we've all heard of before in which the participants will be selected by radical leftist groups so it's like hey we want to just completely take over your event make it about something completely different and only allow those to participate who we select it's like oh so basically a complete hostile takeover of this entire platform sounds very tyrannical yeah a little bit so (laughs) basically uh queer trans black and people of color would then lead workshops and of course be paid by uh Pride Edmonton to uh, run these workshops 
focusing on poetry writing and navigating all of the various leftist talking points like race, gender, and spirituality, or I guess what they consider the spirituality. Sounds like there's not a lot of negotiation. Oh, no, there is no negotiating with these people, man. Like, they're not asking, they're telling you, right? So, Mm. after demanding a cultural takeover, the inevitable financial demands were rolling in, so it was uh, $20,000 for both of these groups uh, that were making these demands, and another $1,500 to pay for sober, queer folk-only dance parties that provide these people with a place to, uh, what do they say, a space to move their bodies in which they may not feel safe doing in everyday life. Okay. Uh, So Edmonton Pride, it should be noted, is actually an event. It's not an organization. So, you know, trying to obtain long-term funding from a source like this, like, all they're doing is putting on the event. It's not like a a year-long thing where they have, you know, full-time staff and and all this Mm. kind of stuff and a huge budget from the government or big private donations. Like, what they were basically asking for was 20% of Pride's entire operating budget. Just, like, demanding it straight up. Be like, hey, you got this money? Give us some of that Pride money. Pretty big chunk. And we're going to, you know, we're going to have our, you know, sweat lodges and we're going to have our peace pipe smoking and whatever else that these people want to do to basically completely take over this event, which is actually on their side. Mm-hmm. But th- these are the more radical elements now beginning to, to spread out and say that, hey, we can make demands of these people too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let's see. The cancellation of Pride was, is now being blamed upon white fragility. And violence. Mm. They're saying it's violence to just not give them money. Despite it being a somewhat violent shakedown. <laughs> so, so by disagreeing. Yeah, so even, like, they even disinvited all the military and police from the parade. And it, it wasn't enough even then. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, it's okay as long as, you know, if you have gays, as long as they're not gay cops. Or gay conservatives yeah. or anything like this. It's got to be, you know, have the right politics and the right... Uh, actually, they they really care about their sexuality because if they did, they probably wouldn't be going after the pride parade for, you know, to try to shake them down for money. Yeah, so the target keeps moving. If it's not one thing, then yeah, it's all about the narrative. Bring the shit down. Yeah, and also, um, around about three months ago, um, the documentary film uh, Rise of Peterson, um, about about Jordan Peterson and his recent and the controversy he experienced when he basically he basically become a bit became a big public figure um about three years ago and anyways they had this this movie rise of peterson which was removed from its scheduled week-long run at the carlton cinema in toronto after one or more staff complained so the post-millennial reached out to the carlton cinema and the manager on duty confirmed that there was disagreement among the staff over the film and patricia Marcosia, who directed the movie, said in an email that her company Holding Space Films has also experienced reluctance and rejection from independent film houses and cinemas across the country. And it's pretty surprising because in a way, like, obviously, yes, they're fans of Peterson, but they also do a really good job of interviewing people from the other side, of people who criticize him. or And so they, I think they try to they tried to maintain a neutral view as much as possible and show him in his day-to-day activity mm-hmm. and how he changed from the beginning of the events um, when he challenged that bill and made that YouTube video when he was at U of T to the 
to the point where he was doing the world tour for his um, his book, Twelve Twelve Rules of Life. Yep. And so in a way, they they shaped, they changed they showed how much he changed physically and mentally in a certain way. And um, yeah, I mean, it didn't really seem like that offensive of a film. However, I might be super biased. No, what I mean, remember, Peterson violates a lot of those rules to get people canceled, right? Yeah. He's going up against trans ideology. He's going up against feminist ideology. He's going up against all of it because he has the data to back it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and he just doesn't really care, right? He's just like, hey, this is the truth. I'm going to speak it because I know what happens if people don't. You know what I mean? It's like it's the little lies that you accept that snowball into larger and larger lies. Where it's like if you've accepted them over time, by the time you get to the point where everything's going to shit, you've already accepted all of the premises that that's based on. So by yeah. stepping out against that, you know, he's interfering with the the demands of the people that want to push this narrative. And that he's a threat to them, right? Mm-hmm. So and of he's course not personally try. against... No, but that doesn't matter. It's the narrative he's against, and that's the narrative he's challenging. And that's probably the biggest reason that you're going to get cancelled. And this is what you should be very mm-hmm. careful of, is challenging the prevailing narrative. Absolutely. And remember we discussed that last week, where the prevailing narrative is that Western civilization is a racist, sexist, misogynistic place. It's transphobic and all the other phobics you can think of, and it has to be brought to its knees. And if you do anything to step out against that, then you will be canceled. You know? Mm-hmm. And what are we left with? I mean, I think that's why we're left with these hollow, soulless... Because they can't say anything, right? Because if they don't say... If they say anything that could be deemed as political, then they're mm. going to get canceled, and then they're not going to be able to make up the $400 million it took to, mm. to build the damn movie in the first place. <laughs> So, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think it's, uh, it's all ridiculous. And, and it's like, yeah, and it's like the ide- ideology doesn't have, you know, certain ideologies, they don't have a strong moral base to, like, keep them, keep them strong. No, because if you're a moral relativist, you can't have a strong moral base. Yeah. Yeah. What's that phrase? It's like, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. And that, that's what you'll find with most of these people who tend to be kind of nihilists. They don't really have any fundamental moral structure that they base their decisions on they're just sort of products of being raised by television now if people if people don't read books if people don't learn about these ideas and they're never exposed to them why would we expect anything differently right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we need to be really careful yeah so what we consume and yeah exactly you you gotta have uh you know you gotta watch your diet but you also gotta watch your sort of online diet as well and what narratives you're exposing yourself to and how critically you're able to to challenge them, right? So exactly. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we'll be able to continue to just explain things the way we see them in our limited capacity, and hopefully get <laughs> get people to see things that uh, you know all that is glitter, all that glitters is not gold necessarily. Mm-hmm. Well, thankfully, as a as independent broadcasters, we don't really have that's right anyone to answer to. That's so. right, and. Uh, <laughs> I think it's probably worth announcing that uh, here at Sorted Studios, our team is going to be growing and we're going to be joined by a few new podcasters that are going to be uh, on this ride with us trying to save Western civilization from itself from various different angles. So even though we're covering the political, philosophical, and cultural, there's going to be some people talking about mental health. We're maybe going to have a a journalist join us as well. And who else? Uh, you know, whoever wants to join the team. and. As long as you've got a a taste for the truth and you really hate lies, then it'd probably be uh, quite suitable. Mm -hmm. Something to look forward to. Yep, so it's uh, it's time to build our own media empire, Tim. 
stick it to the man. That's right. <laughs> so yeah, if you guys are interested in joining the team and want to uh, do a little podcasting and get your message out there as well, definitely give us a shout here at Sorted Studios at the email link below. And uh, until next time, I think we're uh, pretty good on this one. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, next time we'll be discussing whatever we happen to think of in the next few weeks. And uh, I hope everybody has a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we'll see all you sons of bitches in 2020. Thanks for joining us. Peace out.